I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Hello, and welcome to episode 20 of Chasing Ghosts, the Irregular Warfare podcast. This is on coin malpractice lessons never learned. I thought that this would be a good opportunity for us to reprise some of the things that we've covered since episode one and to add some addendum notes and things like that. As you know, I've been cranking this out every fortnight since September, try and do it like clockwork so that I commit myself to doing this. I, I have many more episodes to do throughout this year and next and most likely the years following at the current pace that I'm doing. Today's episode will probably be a little uh, Jack Kerouac with uh, consciousness streaming, as it were. And what I wanted to discuss was we've covered history. We've covered the tactics, techniques, and procedure of warfare at the tactical, operational, strategic, and grand strategic level. The political complications of getting involved in warfare. Everything from Clausewitzian fog and friction to my notions of anti-fragility and fragility in insurgency and counterinsurgency, respectively. And then I've covered some historical examples, everything from the French to the U.S. to the British. And I plan on doing a lot more of that in the future to really make a, a deep and, and formal reckoning of all the historiography, all the current events, all the things that are going on, and um, I, I did want to respond to one listener who wrote me and said, Bill, what is your opinion of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia? Uh, I think I've said this on previous episodes, and I say it again. It is the one conflict in my entire adult life as both a interested and professional observer of human conflict during that entire time, both in uniform and out, in which I really can't trust any of the sources from either side. So that being the case, I'm a little agnostic about the whole conflict, and I'm doing some uh, waiting on better data. The one voice of sobriety, military literacy, and strategic sensibility is Colonel Douglas McGregor. I pay attention to what he has to say. I think that he is not a predictor. I don't think anybody really is. But I think he's a great forecaster of what's going on over there. So if there's anyone's advice, notions, and sagacity that I follow, it would be Colonel McGregor, and I would recommend that my listeners check him out. I also had a listener write in say, hey, Bill, what about lessons learned? What do you think for, um, for various things? So I'm going to try to cover a little bit of that today. I'd like to say that in the entirety of this podcast series, I've tried to touch on that. One thing that really bothered me when I was in uniform was that I thought after-action reviews, whether hot washes, which are immediately after an event, or more formal after-action reviews, and of course there's the after-action formal modalities within the U.S. Army and the other services. What a great idea to capture what you've done and assess what's a challenge, what you maintain, 
What is a training deficit? What are things we need to train better at that we presently do? Those kind of things. I mean, I always, I was always fascinated by that. You know, I, I, I still have my rawhide bound 7-8 that would fit in my cargo pocket from my days in the illustrious 101st Airborne Division. And uh, what a great time that was. And uh, what a great place to be a young officer. I'm so thankful that the Army sent me there and I did the things I did. Uh, I, I learned to embrace the suck and I learned how infantry life works and how grunt life advances the margin of victory in all warfare. That the taking of ground, the occupation of said ground and such is how one wins small and large conflicts. But what I also discovered is that we weren't always doing things according to doctrine, but then again, when there was doctrine and we would do it, it wasn't always working out as had been suggested. I'm reminded of a 2013 book that I've talked about before called Wrong Turn, America's Deadly Embrace of Counterinsurgency by Colonel John Gentile. Uh, his first name is spelled G-I-A-N. And uh, I highly recommend the book. It's a bit dated, but there is a quote that I wanted to draw out of this that sort of speaks to this. And, uh, and again, this is published in 2013, hence what the paragraph paragraphs read. Quote, there are cracks in the myth of counterinsurgency, however. At the policy level, President Obama's nomination of Senator Chuck Hagel for Secretary of Defense suggests an end to nearly 20 years of military intervention from Somalia to Afghanistan. Hagel's Vietnam War experience has given him a cautionary view of the use of American military power to transform foreign societies. Uh, and of course, this is a notable change from the dominant view of counterinsurgency. Continuing, the cracks are also seen in the sharp end of American counterinsurgency operations. And I love this, this, uh, this brief little snippet. In 2010, after a year of command in Afghanistan, General Stanley McChrystal visited a combat outpost in Kandahar province to talk to an infantry platoon that a few days prior had a fellow soldier killed in action from an IED strike. General McChrystal spent about 20 minutes explaining the theory and practice of FM 3-24 counterinsurgency, my edit, the infamous counterinsurgency manual published by Petraeus in 2006, to the grieving soldiers. In his talk, he lectured the men, saying that they had, no, that they had to continue to concentrate on the imperatives of counterinsurgency, protecting the Afghan population, providing them with goods, and winning them over to the side of the Afghan government so that insurgents could be separated and captured or killed. Nobody other than McChrystal, a strident proponent of American coin, who declared he kept David Galula's counterinsurgency warfare, the operational template for FM 3-24, and we will treat Galula's writings in the future, at his bedside. Could have explained it any better, but the soldiers listening to the general were not moved by the sermon. One soldier responded angrily that despite the general's assertion that their platoon had stopped the momentum of the insurgency, he didn't believe that was true in his area. The more we pull back, the more we restrain ourselves from killing the enemy in order to protect and secure the population, and the stronger the Tal Taliban was becoming. Rolling Stone reporter Michael Hastings observed this exchange and noted that, at least from his view, General McChrystal may have sold President Obama on counterinsurgency, but many of his own men weren't buying it. End of quote. Again, I'm sorry to say that the, the, the flag officer ranks today in all the services leave a lot to be desired. Uh, 
And of course, I never attained flag rank. I never attained uh, any rank that was august or even close to that, nor could I probably have done so because I'm an eccentric person. And, and eccentrics, unlike in the British Army, where they're sometimes celebrated and sometimes advanced, have a zero chance of getting to the top in the U.S. Army, much less the other armed forces. I can't imagine Admiral Hyman Rickover becoming an admiral in today's Navy. I can't imagine um, some of the men like even uh, General Taylor of World War II and, and Korean War fame attaining a general's rank today because there is a performance, a fit rep, a, a, an officer's performance report paradigm in the Army especially, but I think this goes across all the services, in which you must pursue a risk-averse and zero-defect career path that is the complete opposite of what makes a good warrior and a good soldier on a two-way range in order to make flag rank. If you have one bad OER or one poor fitness reporter, one that simply doesn't fit in the mold, you are not going to become a flag officer. So naturally, from the earliest ranks, those of you who have read Once an Eagle by Anton Myra, which I, I recommend is one of the greatest military books uh, ever published, and in, in there, there's two antagonists. One of them follows the career path that I just described. The other one follows a different career path. And in this case, it is a novel after all. We have an eccentric, very capable soldier who manages to make flag rank. So I, I, it's uh, Sam Damon is that soldier's name in the novel. And uh, the, his antagonist is Courtney Massengale, who becomes the... the um, the politician in uniform, and, and it's, a, it's a great contrast in the novel, as novels do, because they're able to set an artistic lever to these, these brilliant narrative frameworks, portrays what that kind of constancy and what that kind of risk aversion and risk taking does to soldiery. So I recommend the book if you get a chance. Because of that, many say that Petraeus and McChrystal and Raven and many of these others are great captains of history and that they're folks who, who every man will follow through the gates of hell in uniform if they're in a two-way two -way range or a, or a small or a large conflict. Au contraire, I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that we've developed in the past few decades with the exception of Colonel Douglas McGregor and folks like him, there's a reason he, he uh, had to retire as a colonel and never made flag rank, because the man is not only brilliant, he's not only a very sober and deeply read military historian, sort of like Mattis, but he's very critical of what the United States and the West has turned into, especially when it comes to the conduct of irregular warfare. He sort of riffs in uniform on what Douglas Porch and John Gentile have told us about the absolute necessity of not getting involved in counterinsurgency and irregular warfare. But who's listening to that? Speaking of which, my listeners are always reaching out to me and saying, hey, Bill, what, uh, what book is that or what book do you recommend on this particular subject? So I mentioned Anton Myrer's Once an Eagle, published a, a rather long time ago, What's the best novel? I do love novels. What's the best novel to come out on the Afghanistan war? 
I've got the answer. It's called Tattoo Zoo by Paul Avalone. I think this is this may be like James Jones in World War II and, and some of the Korean epics and some of the stuff that came out by Tim O'Brien on the Vietnam War. This ranks right up there with some of the best novels that have ever been written on soldiering and the military. So Tattoo Zoo, a novel of the Afghan war by Paul Avalone. I, I suspect I love this book so much, I will probably devote an entire episode to it in the future. So we're talking about lessons learned today. And I warned you, there would be a uh, stream of consciousness Jack Kerouac flavor to this episode. So I apologize to those of you who may object to that. So what are some of the lessons that are learned? The first lesson, of course, that I've always preached is that, Bill, should we conduct a counterinsurgency? And if we do so, how do we do it effectively? Number one, never, ever, ever get involved in it. But number two, if you do get involved in it, don't listen to the contemporaries in the Western world who loud the British way, now the American way, or the French way, or the Belgian way, or the Spanish way, or the Portuguese way. Because I'm here to tell you, after examining the history, and I'm always open to listeners sending me um, mountains or even a scintilla of evidence proving me wrong in this regard, that really made it work, that really went in there, settled an insurgency that, have crop, that had cropped up and made that insurgency not only neutralized, but made the country itself that had been invaded and occupied by the coin forces neutral or beneficial to the national security interest of that state that went in the first place or the alliance that went in. I can't find any evidence of any in the last 50 years. Some folks would like to tout things like uh, Plan Colombia, I will examine that. Some people will say, well, look what happened in Sri Lanka with the Tamil Tigers, where that, uh, that sort of just either fizzled out or the Tamil Tigers l lost their steam and their mojo and were no longer able to carry on the insurgency. One can point to several things that happened when it, in, in India, for instance, and I think that India has the highest, highest frequency and volume of ongoing insurgencies in any country in the world, along with that hot flashpoint in the, uh, the Kashmir and the Himalayan mountains and foothills between Pakistan and, and India. So there are some out there. I, I, think, uh, I think the jury is in, but I've always prided myself that if someone can provide me with the evidence to show that my notion that the preponderance and the the, um, the enormous evidence is in that Western coin is a fundamental, spectacular, and existential failure wherever it is tried, I'm more than willing to listen. So what are some of the reasons that this happens? Uh, one, for instance, of course, would be cultural IQ. The West prides itself on, uh, on having a really good sense, especially the British, who are rather hubristic when it comes to this, a really good sense of the countries that they go into and what they're facing and what they're up to and what's going to happen and measuring the effects. Everything from India to the Sikhs to Oman to Malaya to Kenya and everything in between. But all of those, for the most part, are monumental mistakes and disasters for what I like to colloquially call the barbed wire empire, which is what the British Empire was. Uh, 
because as you'll recall in earlier episodes, I mentioned that in the first and second Boer Wars at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, concentration camps were the root cause of success for British dominion and victory in South Africa over the fighting Boers. The cultural IQ with the British can go so far as their 800-year occupation of the Irish in the island of Ayr, south of Northern Ireland, which, of course, ended with Michael Collins' brilliant moves, along with Eamon de Valera, between 1916 and 1922 in uh, Ayr, E-I-R-E, after that 800-year occupation. But, of course, what do we have? Once the British free, the Irish Free State is established in 1922, you have Irish socialists fighting other Irish socialists to see who can win militarily to make the best socialist government in Ireland. And, of course, everything that has happened since then has turned them into a basket case in so many ways. And then you look at Northern Ireland, the same thing. It really kicked off into high gear in 1969 with the Troubles, and of course in the 1990s came to a slow draw and stalemate with Sinn Féin and the IRA and all the IRA's permutations, coming to something of an agreement to level out the violence and reduce the violence. One can't say the violence is zeroed out because since those accords in the late 90s and now, there is still violent unrest in parts of Northern Ireland. So here you have the British, who after an 800-year occupation, I would think, would have the number and know the DNA and know the wiring of the Irish mind, whether Catholic or Protestant, and either be able to use them against one another effectively or be able to rule effectively. But of course, in both the 1922 departure of the southern island versus the constant occupation of the northern Irish Republic, we see that in so many ways, the British simply don't seem to have a clue. And, you know, there's an interesting thing that's happening here, too. I find that Western coin is largely unsuccessful in achieving its mercurial goals. I say mercurial goals because as I mentioned previously in, in a number of podcasts, in Afghanistan, every year, you'd get a new American general who would report in to take over the Afghan campaign. He would stand astride the entire country in a very martial pose and with the hubris that comes with being a modern flag officer declare, I've got this. I know what to do. But year after year after year, you have failure after failure after failure. One would think that strategically, the American government and the allies who were in Afghanistan at the time would have a very simple intent and vision, that which, which would be, as I riffed on earlier, creating an Afghanistan that is neutral or beneficial to the national security and well-being of America and whatever Western allies happen to be gallivanting about in the Afghan countryside. Now, while they would give that lip service, they never did anything that would even match getting to that point. Hence my earlier quotation 
of that young, anguished soldier who had lost one of his comrades in the Afghan outback, thinking, this four-star General McChrystal is telling me there's something, something that simply doesn't match up to reality. But I would urge you to think, how many reality-based notions do you think the present flag officer corps and the American armed forces, the Army, the Navy, whatever the case may be, are really realistic about looking at how the world works? Imagine this, for instance. Now, mind you, I do think that I know a little bit about irregular warfare, but one can't be expert in irregular warfare without having a passing knowledge, and I'll never say mastery, but a very deep understanding of conventional warfare, because if one doesn't know the distinction between the two, between conventional warfare and irregular warfare, we've covered that in previous episodes, and I won't bore that with you, bore you with that today, but if, if you don't know that distinction, then you're going to have trouble understanding the military complexities. But in this, one thing that I find really interesting is that we have a military complex out of the Pentagon, and of course the NATO allies, who are not only fighting the Russians through proxy in Ukraine, not only are we fighting all over the place along with the French and other European nations on the continent of Africa, but we have this notion that if that cross-strait endeavor by the Chinese across to Taiwan ever happens, that our American military, maybe even with an alliance with Australia and New Zealand, possibly Japan and the Koreans, that we would be able to pivot seamlessly and effortlessly from what's going on in Ukraine to that and be able to handle a two-front war. I will tell you, this is fantasy when you look at the way the current military manifests itself, how it does its business, and what the history has been that I bored you with for the U.S. military and arms in various conflicts since 1945. It's not a pretty picture in so many ways, but it is not a picture of, of success. It is a picture of a cascade, of a cavalcade of calamities, and that's where we are today. There are a number of advantages, of course, that insurgents have within their own countries. Uh, they just so happen to have been there for decades, hundreds, or possibly even thousands of years, as is the case of the Afghans. They have a sense of where they are. They have a sense of kinship, clan, blood. This is especially evident in Afghanistan and Iraq, and especially evident in any Arabic culture. Now, of course, Islam seems to be the motif that everyone used to, uses to describe these. But remember that Islam is the latest instantiation and characterization of the Arabic culture. And I mentioned earlier, Kenneth Pollack did a really interesting book called Armies of Sand, Why Arab Armies Can't Fight. And I, I urge you to read the book if you get a chance. I know that I'm always giving you book recommendations, but you know. Too many books, too little time. Nonetheless, he makes the case that they can't fight well conventionally for a variety of reasons. What I've discovered is that when it comes to Muslims and Islam conducting insurgencies and counterinsurgencies, there may be some counterinsurgents out there who are Islamic who managed to defeat an Islamic insurgency. 
that's further investigation for me, and I owe that to you as your host in future episodes. But I'm not going to cover that today. What I am going to cover is that no Islamic insurgency has been defeated by the West in any clear way that I can see. For instance, if one looks at 1947 and 1948 and the, the establishment of Israel, you find that if you examine the behavior of the Israelis from 1945 to 1948, they made, they made no friends with the Arabs or the Islamists or the Palestinians in their treatment and behavior towards men, women, and children within the confines of what were then the borders of Israel that was approved by the UN. And one would think that of all the insurgencies going on in, on contemporary planet Earth in the West, that the one in Israel would probably be the one in which you'd say that's been going on for a very long time by two dedicated antagonists, the Israelis and the Palestinians. And by Palestinians, you can put in parentheses, everybody else who flocks to help Palestinians do what they do. One would think that since 1948, what are we looking at here? Almost three quarters of a century of fighting and the resolution is nowhere near. The ability to temper or kill or neutralize that insurgency, let's characterize it as the Palestinian insurgency in Israel, that place is still on fire, and it seems to always be on fire. And even the Israelis, who I will give them military props, as brilliant as they can be in most conventional ways and in few unconventional ways, they haven't solved this problem. It is hubristic for any Western nation to think that they're going to do so. And I think uh, time is on their side. So they know the turf. They've lived there. And all they have to do, for the most part, speaking to insurgencies, is wait the occupier out. Whether it's Belgium, whether it's France, whether it's Great Britain, whether it's Spain, whether it's Portugal, whether it's the United States whether it's the far-flung reaches of the Philippines or whether it's some kind of African country that, uh, that may be at hand, insurgencies prop up, counterinsurgencies aren't very successful. Even when one looks at the political aspects of that, and we, and we have this weird thing in the West where we think that, well, politics and war, they're separate components. Well, as you know, Klaus Fitz would tell us that War is simply an extension of politics, and of course that's the case. It is political. But in this case, we are going to make a distinction, and that distinction would be the actions of NGOs, the actions of the State Department, or those kind of foreign office modalities across the board, You know, whether it's the foreign office in Great Britain or, or its concomitant uh, ally in one of the countries on the European continent who's conducting these wars. They associate themselves with non-government organizations, NGOs. You've got the Peace Corps. You've got the uh, Voice of America, the Endowment for Democracy. The, the State Department will go over there and try to say that we are going to be the organizational glue and an impetus for bringing all of this reconstruction stuff into Iraq or Afghanistan and they end up blundering their way through. They end up talking to people who are natural-born collaborators, people who are naturally corrupt, people who are naturally attracted to glomming on to an occupier and trying to get every advantage they can out of that. 
I highly recommend a book called We Meant Well, How I Helped Lose the Battle for the Hearts and Minds of the Iraqi People by Peter Van Buren, brilliant author, used to work for the State Department. This very book uh, led to his resignation and early retirement, I think, from the Department of State because he showed that the Department of State, as an emperor, had no clothing whatsoever. And, and when you read about what it was like for him to organize, bring pallets of cash, give pallets of cash, organize everything from sewage to water to working with contractors to working with the indigenous people themselves to working with the political structures and the inference and, and the, uh, the interface between American, Western, European, and in this case, Iraqi political organizations and bureaucracies. It's mind-blowing how much was just uh, uh, either left on the table as success or just blundering. The kind of rake stomping that would make the Pink Panther proud. It, uh, the, the book is amazing as an insider account of, of what this kind of existential blundering looks like because there's no synchronization with these NGOs and the, and the whole of government. And of course, we all know, and this is one reason why I'm not invited to West Point to talk about this, or I'm not invited to the Joint Special Operations University to talk about COIN and insurgency, is because I think that government ineptitude is wired. It's part of the DNA. It's part of how governments work, whether it's the American government, an Eastern government, a Western government, whatever the, 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 the case may be, Corruption is the coin of the realm, and incentives are the coin of all human behavior. I, I don't know why that, that is from the University of the Intuitively Obvious, but so many people who seem to be government bureaucrats simply don't understand that and don't understand that if you don't war game the second and third order effects and the unintended consequences of what you do when a nation is occupied, and I've talked about it before as far as there's always going to be a... 10% of the population, give or take 50%, that will always and forever object to an occupation by an invader, never cooperate, and even go kinetic or non-kinetic in an Irish democracy sort of way against it. These are assumptions that should be made that were not made, for instance, in the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the 2001 invasion of Afghanistan. And of course, all governments, in my mind, are entropic by design, hence the need for initiative violence, and hence the need for having a moral and martial imagination that says, if we kill enough of them, they'll start to cooperate. Well, of course, we know psychologically, especially in Islam, the more women and children that are maimed and killed or even in the least part, inconvenienced by being touched by people who shouldn't touch them. You, what you have set in train is an honor, reckoning, and avengement cycle that will never end. And of course, this is what the, the U.S. has landed in and its allies in Syria, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and in Libya, and in countless other places in the sandbox in which that understanding simply isn't there. Again, it goes without saying that kinetic action is always a force multiplier to swell resistance ranks 
within the country that is the object of the counterinsurgency. And something I touched on in a very early episode, the second episode, is my notion of anti-fragility and fragility. So listen to the episode if you want to really know what I'm getting at and what I'm after with that notion. But to simplify it for this episode, my supposition is that most, and I will use the term most instead of all because somebody can always find an exception to the rule, and I will honor that. I'm going to say the lion's share of insurgencies are anti-fragile. That means that they get better under stress. They tend to perform better. They tend to adapt because, remember, in all human affairs, war is the grandest, greatest, and most complex enterprise for complex adaptive systems, for chaos, for complexity, for fog, for friction, for antagonists in small numbers, large numbers, huge numbers to come against each other where the plan never survives contact and they must adapt and overcome under very stressful situations. So the other side of the coin is that all, no, I'll say most, counterinsurgencies are fragile enterprises. And I repeat, counterinsurgency enterprises, for the most part, in the Western conception, in the 20th century after World War II, and up until this very moment, are the notion of taking an entire military whole-of-government complex from the West, parking it in a deep state death star over the, over the given country that's being invaded, and trying through a lack of cultural IQ and many kinetic means to force that country and whoever collaborates with the occupation, using them enforcing the remainder of the country to stop the insurgency. And of course, this doesn't happen because once you start using kinetic means or even non-kinetic means, which would be forcing the kind of gender assumptions that, that the West wishes on third world and developing nations that have the hard time grasping the fundamentals, much less what I take, to, what I take for the most part to be not well-intentioned gender initiatives and other initiatives to culturally transform the invaded country, that it usually backfires and backfires in a very fundamental way. But the backfiring, especially when it comes to third world countries, which for the most part are built on struggle and have hard people inhabiting them, what do you think is going to happen when you try to impose upon them not only an alien culture, an alien religiosity, but the reduction of their own ways, mores, and what Burke's and what um, Edmund Burke would call the little platoons, take all of that, rip it asunder, and say, no, 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 you need to copy us. You need to be just like America. It's, a, it's as if we think that it, in America is just like Holland, or Holland is just like the UK, or the UK is just like Libya, or, or go on and on and on. And we can all see none of us are State Department mandarins. Uh, some of us, maybe, who are listening to the show. Uh, uh, most of us don't have that, but we know almost instinctively with our intuition engines that that's probably not going to work and that dog isn't going to hunt because people fundamentally 
like to be the way they are. They may not be in the best circumstances, but they don't like others, especially from other countries coming in and doing that very thing. For instance, let's put our Red Dawn hats on real quickly. And to use the loosest and coarsest of analogies, America is invaded by the Chinese. Would the Chinese be welcomed with open arms? Uh, maybe by some quarters, especially the higher the urban density, the more welcome communists would be, most likely. But the lower the urban density and the more rural the urban density, the more opposition to an invading force from outside the country, whether Chinese or British or whatever the case could be Canadian, although I don't think that they would offer us too much of an opposition if they were to try to invade America. They're so nice. But nonetheless, it simply wouldn't work. Why would we think that we could rush into a country like Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, parts of the Horn of Africa, and, uh, and all the other places that Europe has stuck its nose into since 1945? We'll just resign ourselves to that small portion of insurgency and counterinsurgency history. And you find that, for the most part, it simply doesn't work, and it backfires in a spectacular fashion. But that's the nature of what we're talking about because most insurgencies are anti-fragile. They, under stress, they tend in this contest of complex adaptive systems and warfare, especially under the umbrella rubric of irregular warfare versus conventional warfare, where in conventional warfare you would have attrition, positional warfare, logistics, all of that is king. But what's, those things aren't so important when it comes to either combating an insurgency or being an insurgent. Because if we take a look, for instance, at the IRA, since the Troubles in 1969, I think I've seen figures where at their peak they had 500 bomb makers, trigger men, and actual military folk who were fighting against, at its peak, 55,000 combined British Army to be the SAS, the Royal Marines, you name it, Royal Ulster Constabulary and all the other Protestant collaboration forces in Northern Ireland operating in synchronization with London in the prosecution of the war in Northern Ireland since 1969. I mean, there, there's a guerrilla calculus there, and I've described this guerrilla calculus when I talked about what happened with General Leto Vorbeck in Africa in 1916 through 1918, where you would have what I call the guerrilla warfare ratios of, of going on, I think it was as much as uh, 50 to 1. But General Leto Vorbeck still managed to prevail, in a sense, being in November 1918, the only German general standing undefeated on planet Earth at the time. So again, I would urge you, if you're interested in, in my notion of anti-fragility and fragility when it comes to irregular warfare and what it has to do with assessing and making sober and intelligent analysis of the possibility of winning, please refer to episode two of this podcast. Another thing, I was recently at a professional organization, and I gave a number of papers, and one of the papers that I gave was Prometheus's gift decanting smaller conflicts from larger conflicts in which I showed, just going back several hundred years, back to the late 19th century, that every time there is a larger conflict, and of course, again, this is the university of the intuitively obvious, what it does is it takes 
maybe non-kinetic, maybe mildly kinetic disputes, martial or otherwise, that have been going on in a country and uncorks them and decants them. And through the larger conflict, establishes a means by which those conflicts can go kinetic. And in this case, we would have parts of a country, let's say the Basques in Spain, or the Kurds in Iraq, or, or other, other such peoples where all of a sudden there's a larger conflict. And in that larger conflict, they start to sue for the distinctions, the differentiations, maybe even the balkanization as we saw in the 1990s when Yugoslavia sort of balkanized itself quite literally and fell apart. We saw this earlier, of course, in 1989 and 1991 where we have the dozen or so Stan brothers on the underbelly of the decaying, defeated, and dissolving Union of Soviet Socialist Republics going off on their own. Of course, this decanted stuff like Azerbaijan and Armenia, which in the fall of 2020, for those of you paying attention, is a very good indicator and a very good object lesson of what war is going to look like in this century, both conventional and unconventional. The same thing with the Chechens, the same thing with the Osatians. I would suggest that the same thing has occurred with the eastern third of the Ukraine, where the very loss of the Soviet enclaves and the very notion of NATO starting this eastern-bound blob since 1991 in which promises are made and promises are not kept to creep and creep and creep and violate a substantial and not appreciated buffer zone that the Russians would appreciate. This is not to say that the Russians are correct or that NATO is correct. It's to say that one can look at this dispassionately and know that not only are we decanting these smaller conflicts that, by the way, can become much larger conflicts. I give you as Exhibit A, 1914, a young man with two rounds kills the Archduke Ferdinand and his wife. By the way, they happen to be going the wrong way, and the young man who did this happened to have been right there, and it was happenstance, not planned. Nonetheless, we all know what World War I looked like after that, and we all know that World War I led to World War II. World War II, in a counterfactual, may not have occurred if the West had not done World War I. When one looks at World War II, there are some who would suggest that it didn't end in 1945. It may have ended in 1948, or it may have ended in 1952, or it may have ended in 1962, because we see after World War II, with the absolute devastation, and of course it started for the British in World War I, the absolute devastation of all the European colonial projects worldwide dissolved. And they all started just go going away and becoming either their own nations or more areas for these former colonial powers, like the British in Oman and Yemen, to go and try to retain what they had. Kenya is a really good object lesson in what not to do. Where you have all of these countries that are taking advantage of that larger conflict, in this case World War II, to decant and uncork the conflicts that they had, in this case against colonizers, and kick them out and assume their independence or free state status 
whatever that characterization would look like on the continent, for instance. Africa has many exhibits of, of what that would look like. And of course, once that happens, within those very countries, Ethiopia and Eritrea come to mind, those conflicts are decanted and they start fighting each other. And of course, Ethiopia, all of their troubles in the 20th century are a result of the Italian colonial project in the 1930s against Ethiopia, where El Duce was trying to recreate the Roman Empire, the sequel, and didn't quite get there as he assumed that he may have. Syria is another example where this happens, where you have this decanting of a smaller conflict. We had what happened in Libya, again, Libya, a former Italian colony, and you find that a lot of the Italian co colonies, well, like many colonies, but especially the Italian colonies, just economic basket cases and, and disasters. Not to say that the French and the British didn't do their fair share of the same. Look at the Belgians in the Congo, for instance. But what you have is you have these areas that are set on fire by the larger conflicts. One could see what's happening in the Ukraine, for instance. Now, mind you, as I said at the beginning of this episode, it is the one conflict in my lifetime in which I can't trust any of the data. I rely a lot on, as I mentioned, Colonel Douglas McGregor and his analysis, because his makes the most sense to me. But we have this notion where you have NATO rattling sabers, you have America rattling sabers and saying, well, if it takes us going to war with Russia to end this, that's what we'll do. My God, I mean, where did this start? Of course, it starts in Ukraine, but it starts earlier. It starts with the disintegration of the USSR and everything, because in history, what you find is, of course, as Mark Twain told us, history rhymes. But history isn't simply about the dates. History is about consequences. History is about cause, of, cause and effect. And history is about that, that vaunted and maybe elusive butterfly, the butterfly that beats its wings in China and causes a tidal wave elsewhere as a result of a correlative and or causative connection between those things that set into train larger and larger things. Again, it goes without saying, humanity is a complex entity. It's a complex organism in the way it behaves on Earth. And of course, war and irregular warfare, which is the subject of this podcast, is always going to be with us. So one can say, why don't we do it smarter, but maybe I'm just whistling past the graveyard. So those are my thoughts for today. I appreciate my listeners. I appreciate the emails I get from folks. My email is cgpodcast at pm.me. That is cgpodcast at pm.me. I appreciate the support and overwhelming constructive comments that I get. Occasionally, I'll get a barb and arrow, but one has to expect that because I think the, the, the enemies, the antagonists, and the folks who plain don't like what I do, that is a measure of my impact. That's a measure of, you know, if, I, if I'm riling people up and getting on the right list, maybe I'm saying the things that should be said out loud. So I hope to join you in a fortnight. We'll do another episode. Will it be history? Will it be current events? Who knows? I'll let you know next time. Thanks for listening. This is Bill, out.